everyone. Welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This is Nick, and I'll be your host for today. We are going to begin a series, and how long that series ends up being is totally unknown at this point. I don't want to make any promises I can't keep. But this series is going to be through the Nicene Creed, or through Nicaea, or something of that effect. I haven't officially come up with a name quite yet, but we are going to survey um, the history and the theology behind the Nicene Creed of 381, and then we will walk through it line by line, bringing in historical context, church fathers, things of that nature. That's the plan. That's the goal. And so we will see how that goes. This is the introduction and the survey of history from the Council of Nicaea in 325 to the Council in Constantinople in 381. Um, and the creed that we're looking at is the version that we most often see that was formulated in 381, not 325. And uh, I hope to have a supplemental graphic comparing the two on the website with this episode for you to look at. Um, so let's give you a basic idea of what this creed is. The creed is also called the Nicene Creed, the creed, or the symbol of faith. Um, it was formulated at the first and second ecumenical councils of the early church, and the first was held in Nicaea in 325, and the second was held in Constantinople in 381. The creed outlines the backbone of the universal Christian faith while also combating various heresies that arose in the early church. So our goal for today is to discuss the brief general history leading to this creed, and then as installments go on, we'll discuss the theology behind it, we'll discuss the players behind it, we'll discuss the terminology issues, and uh, with that framed, we can just jump right in and see where we get today. So following Pentecost in the first century through the fourth century, the Christian church spread far. Um, much of its presence fell within the borders of the Roman Empire, though there are traditions that lead um, the apostles elsewhere and outside of the empire. Now, despite persecutions that would arise, the church would actually continue to grow and flourish. And within the empire, the church would thrive and would also be united as one church with multiple languages for quite some time. Uh, between the variety of present languages, um, the two most predominant were, would be Latin, which was used in politics and administration, and Greek, the language of everyday commerce. Those would be the four front languages. Latin would be heavily based in the West, notably Rome, and Greek predominantly in the East. And usually this, this division is how people will break up um, church history and things of that nature. You have the Eastern uh, Fathers, that's the early Christian writers, or the Western Fathers, or you have the church in the West or the church of the East, and then you have the Roman Empire that would eventually split into the East and West with a seat in Rome and a seat in Constantinople, things of that nature. So those, that Greek, Latin, East, West uh, dynamic is always at the forefront of these discussions, really. Now, there were major centers of Christianity in uh, places of Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. And of course, Christianity was not limited to these centers, but these were predominant. Now, Jerusalem was considered um, to be of worthy honor because of its history. Um, and at this point in the church, through the 4th century, the church had no schism, no serious division, and was united. And 
we're going to stress this here in a little bit because it helps frame the context. But before AD 313, the Christian church was an illegal institution. Um, and this was specifically because it was recognized as being distinct from Judaism following the Jewish war in 66 to 70 AD. Now, the spread of Christianity um, allowed for Christians to become targets of Rome because, one, you have this idea of only Judaism was really allowed in that sense outside of the, the Roman uh, polytheistic religion. And then you had the imperial cult, and then you also have the reality that polytheism was heavily focused upon territory and deities who had specific territories. And so whenever Christianity would spread, those territories were challenged, and for the pagans, this would result in disaster and chaos uh, instead of peace and security that those in Rome wanted. Um, and so it was because of this that the early church would actually find itself with early apologists uh, defending against the claims of being barbaric and simple-minded, um, and they would also have to endure persecutions. Now, the last great persecution was headed by Decius and Diocletian. You probably heard of Diocletian. Uh, but they basically issued edicts that required sacrifices to imperial deities, and they also sought to conform Christians to their religious adherence. Now, in 312, the emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and he issued what is called the Edict of Milan in 313. This edict would allow for Christians to live freely and legally within the empire. In 324, Constantine would move the capital of the empire from Rome to a new city, and he would call it Constantinople. Uh, the Latin capital of Rome moved to the Greek capital of Constantinople then. And this would be significant for a number of reasons, especially whenever we get to 381, whenever we're told that Constantinople is the new Rome. Um, the Eastern Church wasn't only Greek-speaking, though, and the Western Church wasn't only Latin-speaking, so we can't oversimplify even those categories are helpful. So the peace provided by Constantine during this time would allow for the church to freely focus upon other issues, namely theological issues, right? It would be the emperor Theodosius in 382 who would make Christianity the official religion of the empire, despite many common myths around Constantine that play such a role. Um, and basically, Theodosius would, would legalize it by saying that the Nicene Christians were the only true Christians who could be called Catholic or Christian or universal. And we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, these freedoms um, for Christians would allow for Christians to meet together and resolve issues as a larger church body. And we basically find the church quickly turning into a, um, a church government of Episcopalian. So from here, we find uh, these larger meetings would be called ecumenical councils and ecumenicism would be understood or recognized as that which was universally accepted after the council had convened, and sometimes um, sometimes that would be sometime after. Now, the term ecumenicism can often have this negative connotation attached to it because of our modern context, and so we should place this in its proper context. Now, within this context, ecumenicism was already in existence. Uh, the church was already united, as I already kind of mentioned before. Um, while, again, we have those distinctions of the Western and Eastern churches along with Greek, Armenian, Syriac, etc., the church was united, and ecumenical councils signified the unity of the church on essentials of the Orthodox Christian faith. And Orthodox comes from a Greek term 
That means righteous or correct opinion. In this particular um, context, correct doctrine, the correct Christian faith. So you hear orthodox, it means correct opinion, correct doctrine. So from there, we actually um, see that there are technically um, there, the Eastern and Western Church, but there was no Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox Church in the way that we know it today back then. Um, and you can discuss that till the cows come home. Um, and you can also discuss the dynamics between the leadership in Rome versus the leadership in Constantinople for days. Um, but they were not considered separate bodies of the church. They were just different churches in terms of, well, this church in the East is um, Alexandria. This church in the West is Rome, uh, things like that. So it is here when the church, as reflected in histories, even by the reformers, were Catholic. And when, when you define Catholic here, um, and Catholic just means the universal church, the universal faith held ecumenically by all. Um, a lot of people have hangups with the term Catholic, but whenever we see John Calvin or other reformers like Luther or whomever in the early church using Catholic, they mean the universal faith. Um, ecumenicism within our modern context typically is the uniting of groups like Protestants and Roman Catholics without necessarily addressing or correcting issues of division that are crucial and disallow united worship, such as uh, papal primacy, which is also um, a division from the Roman Catholics with the Eastern Church. Um, so there's something worth noting there. But within this context of church history, the church is one unit, and the ecumenical councils are those councils that are foundational for Christian doctrine on the Incarnation, Christology, and Trinitarianism. Where Protestants will probably disagree here, and it's, it's more about ecclesiastical structure, are the ecclesiastical canons or canon law of the councils, um, but the creeds of the councils are upheld. So the first to note here, um, the creeds of the ecumenical councils, with the exception of the seventh ecumenical council, which dealt with images and icons, if you remember our episodes on that, um, they are generally accepted by those who are informed evangelicals and Protestants. Um, so those doctrines from Nicaea to Chalcedon are seen as core and creedal and worthy of acceptance because they faithfully and precisely articulate that which is found in Scripture. Um, there are grievances by early church writers in these periods that we're talking about, about having to use extra biblical language to describe precisely what is being taught in Scripture. And the reason why is because you would have false teachers using just biblical language in a way that was misleading, uh, deceitful, or ambiguous. And so they, they use precise terms to make sure that what they believed was precisely outlined and organized in a way that even false teachers who use the right terminology with the wrong definition uh, would be weeded out, so to speak. Um, many times you will find that these creeds from Nicaea to Chalcedon are actually articulated, taught, recited, and included in statements of faith in various Protestant evangelical congregations. Now, backtracking from where we were historically from Theodosius in 382, we have the first ecumenical council, and that is famously known, but famously exaggerated, as the Council of Nicaea in 325. Now, Nicaea, the first Council of Nicaea, because there was multiple, was summoned by Constantine in response to a doctrinal dispute that began in 318 in Alexandria. The man's name that is often attached to this dispute is Arius, who was a presbyter and a popular preacher. We'll discuss the theology behind this controversy later on, um, but first we're just going to continue to survey the historical puzzle. 
So Constantine summoned this council with the purpose of restoring unity to the empire's divided church over the controversy that took upon itself Arius's name, Arianism. Um, in AD 325, the council would meet then in Nicaea, and this is in Northwest Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. And then they had about 300 bishops um, and most of them were from the Eastern Empire, with a few being from the West. Now, Constantine took part in the debates and discussion um, as a chairman, essentially. And in truth, the historical details of this council are pretty limited. What didn't occur was the creation of Christianity or the creation of the canon, despite the many exaggerations of those fictional myths. And at this point, we have Constantine's... Uh, advisor for matters of the church suggests that the council accept a statement of faith that clearly outlined the reality that the son Jesus was not a created being, but rather that he was eternal and divine. Um, and of course that gives you a hint of what the Arians taught. They taught that Jesus was a created being, but we'll get into the theological nitty gritty, um, later on. Um, so the proposal was accepted and through drafts and revision, we have our initial confession of faith which is known as the Creed of Nicaea. And this is often marked with a N whenever you're reading like scholarly works. And so you'll see the little N in parentheses. Um, the council hit a number of phrases within this creed that were specifically designed to refute Arian teachings. But some of these terms would be problematic as time passed on. And we'll get to that. Um, and that's basically because of the ambiguity behind these terms. Um, while we will discuss this in more detail, I wanted to give an example here so that you can kind of see what was happening. And so we'll look at two terms here, hypostasis and usia, which were often used interchangeably. Now, we know these terms today as being person and substance, um, hypostasis being person and usia being substance or being. For those in 325, however, this distinction was not understood. We have the privilege of having these terms hammered out to have precise, clear definitions. So Robert Lethem actually summarizes well what was going on by saying, thus at the time of Nicaea, hypostasis and usia could be used as synonyms and be used to describe either what God is as three or what he is as one. Secondly, he points out that hypostasis could refer to three and usia be ignored or rejected. Three, he points out that hypostasis could be used for a distinct existence and usia for nature. And then four, or uncertainty could prevail. That's just how he summarized the last point. Sometimes single writers moved from one meaning to another, and a few do clearly distinguish them. And that is from Robert Lethem's Through Western Eyes, Eastern Orthodoxy, a Reform Perspective, which, by the way, I quote Robert Lethem from two different books in this episode, The Holy Trinity and... Eastern Orthodoxy, a Reformed Perspective. Both of them are excellent. Um, they have a lot of overlap. Um, he, he basically kind of copies and pastes his own chapters a couple times, which, I mean, don't really blame him. He put the work in. Great books, anyway. Um, so, while these confusions would be realized as time pressed on, the creed penned at Nicaea in 325 was still a victory over heresy at that time. It, it would be later on as things flesh town developed that people are like, oh, think bad things are kind of happening because of this confusion. Now, along with this creed, the council would also put together a series of anathemas. And so we're going to define anathema. Um, to pronounce an anathema on an individual or to anathematize them was to declare them to be outside of the church. This was beyond just excommunication because excommunication, you could be um, restored um, based off of repentance. 
But to be anathematized was to say that you were not a Christian at all. Um, the creeds and anathemas state, quote, and whoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, or that before he was begun, he was not, or that he was made of things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature, or subject to change or conversion, all that so say the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes them. Um, so following Nicaea in 325, the historical data and theological discussions become quite difficult to navigate. It becomes very uh, convoluted and messy. Um, and often those who are surveying the data will group people into theological camps for the sake of convenience, while also noting that the circumstances were more of a spectrum and less clear cut. Um, and everyone does it differently, uh, it seems like. But um, sometimes individuals will just cut the issue down to as simple as East and West, but this is way too simplistic. Um, so whenever I was determining which one to follow, I'll actually be looking at Robert Lethem, but we're going to discuss that in the theological aspect, not this particular episode. So suffice to say that this discussion, um, this debate from Nicaea and this confusion of terminology raged on, namely with various parties arising in terminology further aggravating the situation. And so what we find is that the confusion of language in many instances led to two orthodox positions to view one another as heretics. And uh, this could be understood, really, if we apply these confusions to our day and age. For example, if person and substance were used interchangeably in our context, and we said properly that God is one substance and three persons, we could find ourselves being misunderstood to say that God is one person and three substances. So these types of confusions were actually occurring at this time. Uh, for example, those who understood that the father and son shared the same nature or usia were confused as being Sabalians because they were, they, people thought that they were holding that the father and son shared the same person. And so, and the Sabalians, for the record, are heretics that held to a form of what we call modalism. Um, but they also, the Sabalians, used usia, but to say that the father and son were the same person. So, so having that mixture of language really caused some confusion. And that's where a lot of the Christian writers post-325 helped immensely. Um, so in the midst of this confusion, a leader of the Church of Alexandria in 328 rose up, and he is known as Athanasius. Athanasius' legacy is both exaggerated and undermined out of overcorrection, but it's fair to say that Athanasius was a great champion of Orthodox theology uh, within the East, um, and he was actually banished or persecuted five times and exiled for 17 years, namely because of political reasons from um, the, the emperor that would be in the East, but regardless, it's pretty crazy. So his influence would continue all the way to today. I read Athanasius the other day. It's really rich. Um, and we'll talk more about him later. But following the council and the formation of the creed in Nicaea in 325, Arians actually grew in strength and number with Eusebius of Nicomedia, not Caesarea. So there's a, you have to remember that there's a lot of people with the same name. You have, uh, for example, Clement of Rome and Clement of Alexandria. And so they distinguish each other by their name. Well, the Arian leader was Eusebius of Nicomedia, and he was actually pretty politically savvy, so much so that he gained position in political courts and uh, would end up being head of the church in Constantinople, if I remember correctly. But Constantine passed 
away in 337, and he caused the empire to split into the east and west between his two sons. Thus, the web of history and theological discussion becomes a little bit more convoluted, because that makes having these discussions much easier. But in 353, one of Constantine's sons, Constantius, I think that's how you say it, he began a persecution of Orthodox Christians uh, because he was an Arian emperor in the East. He would actually crush those who favored the verdict of Nicaea, and this included uh, the Athanasius of the West, as he was called, which is Hilaria Poiters, who was exiled in 356. Um, also, great works if you can find them. You can find a lot of those online for free um, by looking up Philip Schaff's volumes and just search the name of these people with Philip Schaff's volume. You can read them. Um, I just got done reading Hillary Porter's too, and hopefully I'm saying Porter's right. Um, if you're new to the show, mispronunciation is the name of the game for me. Uh, the Eastern Emperor uh, would continue to persecute, torture, banish, and exile those who were Nicene Christians, those who were Orthodox. And there was nuance between how um, things were understood within that, but uh, I'm using broad categories just for the historical explanation here. We'll talk more about the nuances later on. But eventually, Constantine's son would die in 361, and Julian the Apostate would take over, and he was an apostate. He grew up Christian, but as you can guess, he, he was an apostate. I feel like I said that too many times. And he would take over the throne in the East, and he would allow for the return of Nicene Christians, which seems kind of strange, but his motivation was to bring more discord via theological disputes amongst the Christians. Kind of a weird plan, but I guess it could work. Um, but it proved not to. Athanasius returned to Alexandria, and uh, he actually motivated agreement between parties to unify their focus on those who denied orthodoxy, such as the Arians and other groups that were beginning to arise at the time. And during this time period, Athanasius was particularly helpful because he recognized and pointed out the issue stemmed from confusion of employee terminology. And the way that he really kind of stressed it all was by saying, hey, we're using these terms, but we mean the same things. And so we should be unified in, um, in what we're doing. And Athanasius' action towards this unified church led to his exile again from Julian the Apostate. And Julian would die in 363. Uh, but another Arian would be given authority over the East uh, with persecution of those who were Nicene Christians. Now, Athanasius returned to Alexandria in 366, finally, and he died in 373 after living out those remaining years in peace. Um, after 17 years of um, exile and being banished several times, good for him. The influential... Theologians that would follow Athanasius to defend and give a more precise articulation of Nicene Orthodoxy would be known as the Cappadocians. The Cappadocian fathers, as they are called, are Basil the Great, um, who lived AD 330 to 379, Gregory of Nyssa in 335 to 394, and Gregory of Nazians. I'm never going to pronounce that one correctly, 330 to 390. Their name, the Cappadocians, stems from their place of origin, uh, Cappadocia, in Asia Minor. These three would expound and clarify Nicene theology um, in a way that would allow for a more precise understanding of the Nicene Creed, allow for more unity, and would allow for the creed that we know of from 381 to be drafted. We'll look a little bit at their theology too as we proceed in the next few episodes. 
The Eastern Errant Emperor, Valens, died in 378. We skipped a little bit of time. And the Western Nicene Emperor appointed a new Nicene Emperor for the East called Theodosius. So now we're back to Theodosius. Now, Theodosius issued an edict in 380 that recognized only the Nicene adherents as Christians. And Theodosius would also summon the Council of Constantinople in 381. And this was to unite the Nicene believers. There was no representation of the Western Church at this council, um, and there was no one from Rome at this council, uh, but it would still be recognized as ecumenical by 550. Uh, some of the canons issued at the council would actually bring contention in the church, namely in regards to Constantinople being the new Rome, uh, given the seat being moved in 324. Uh, and there's also another issue that will arise from the creed itself, but we'll get to that when we get to it. Um, but this council is often to have said to have received the Creed of Nicaea and produced the new creed, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, often noted as C. Um, some people argue that that's the more precise name. Um, we're going to use Nicene Creed for the sake of simplicity, and that's that. Um, now, the version of the creed is often recognized um, to be the Nicene Creed, and which is why we're going to stick with that. And the creed confirms the creed from 325 while also including the deity of the Holy Spirit to combat other issues that arise. Now, while many times people emphasize um, the expansions and updates, the creed also has omissions of words, and we'll discuss those, and omissions of phrases, and we'll discuss those as we go along. Um, and this creed would ultimately be instrumental for basic instruction, teaching doctrine, and would be recited for hundreds of years, and would also be a major point of contention because of an insertion into the creed by the West. And again, like I said, we'll mention that later. Now, the history I just articulated can be debated um, because there's no record of this creed at the Council in 381. And this leads to some scholars rejecting the origin of the creed being at Constantinople. Um, such a debate isn't particularly necessary here, um, but it's worth mentioning for those of you who want to go study this issue in more depth. Um, it's my position that the creed was known before or around 381 and assumed to be a continuation of 325, um, thus not necessitating the explicit mentioning of the creed. It was already known and used. And Robert Lethem, who holds to a similar view in his book, The Holy Trinity, presents his reasoning for that view, uh, namely by pointing out compelling arguments for the 381 origin of the creed. So there are compelling arguments. One example of such arguments is that at the Council of Chalcedon, another ecumenical council, um, the creed is recited for the council in 451, uh, and it accepted the origin of the Nicene Creed, um, especially which is significant, especially since they were known for opposing unnecessary creeds. And so there's a number of uh, discussions on that that you could have, but that seems like an unnecessary discussion to have here. So with that said, we're going to close with the creed as we know from 381, and then we'll go into the next episode talking about some of the players, terminology, and theology. So this is the creed. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not created, of one essence with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from the heavens and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man, 
crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. Rising on the third day, according to the scriptures, and ascending into the heavens, he was seated at the right hand of the Father. And coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, his kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. In one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remissions of sins. I expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. Amen. So that wraps up our first episode, our introduction and historical survey of the Nicene Creed. I hope you enjoyed it and found it um, edifying in some shape or form. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Home.